Jeremiah 13. And I have every confidence that if you need a Bible, our friend Jim will get one to you. Jeremiah 13. I was a little apologetic on Sunday towards the end for, for running an extended metaphor the way that I did. You know, Paul's voyage to the destination that God had promised to see him safely to our voyage to the promised destination that God has promised to see us safely to. And, and, and I was a little apologetic because not everyone thinks metaphorically. I do, violently at times. My wife's not so much, and so she reminds me that not everybody is me. But a brother grabbed me that afternoon, and he said, you don't have to apologize for, for speaking in metaphor or symbolism, because if anyone speaks the language of metaphor, it's God, which of course is true. Types and, and metaphors, not, not the only way that God speaks, obviously. He doesn't do it all the time, but he certainly doesn't do it none of the time. He does it a decent amount of the time, including tonight. This is one of those times as we turn to Jeremiah 13. We left off last week in Jeremiah 12. God was speaking to Judah and had, and had been since chapter 10, specifically about his covenant with them, covenant that dated back to the feet of Mount Sinai, a covenant that they'd broken God had been speaking to them about that covenant and the judgment that was awaiting them as a result. The judgment that was explicitly spelled out when they made the covenant all the way back recorded in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy. God sang through Jeremiah, yeah, all of that is what you've brought on yourself. Well, chapter 13 is going to cover a lot of the same territory but God is going to express it differently. He's going to express it tonight poetically and symbolically, which is probably why when the scrolls of Jeremiah were collected and assembled in the order in which we have them by Jeremiah or his secretary, whoever did it, probably why chapter 13 follows chapters 11 and 12. They were probably placed together, not chronologically, we know that, but probably placed together because they're thematically similar. They covered the same territory. They may or may not have been spoken anywhere close to the same time. But chapter 13, verse 1, we, we, we have God once again presenting side by side a description of Judah's pride, the corruption that resulted and the judgment that's going to ensue. But this time, by way of illustration, the Lord said to me, verse 1, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates again, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on? Let's break it down. First of all, sash. We think of sash as, as, as a, a belt made of cloth. 
other, other Bible translations render that girdle, and that's probably closer. If Jeremiah were a guy, we would probably be reading something like petticoat or half slip. If we track down other places in the Old Testament where this word shows up, it refers to a, an undergarment, and one of the places that it refers to explicitly is an undergarment of the priest. Okay, that you're, you're reaching, Patrick. I'm really not, because the sash, the girdle, the undergarment that, that God is, is directing him to acquire here, instructing him to put on, is made of linen, and the priestly garments, all of them, undergarments included, had to be linen. The priests didn't sweat laboring for the Lord. So the sash that God directs Jeremiah to acquire is also linen. What do we have? We have an intimate garment that points to Israel's calling to be a priestly people. Exodus 19, verse 6 Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And to further emphasize the closeness, the familiarity, the intimacy of this relationship, the relationship between God and his people, God says, Jeremiah, yeah, put it on. I want it to be very, very close to you. And he further instructs him, don't wash it, don't put it in water. What is that all about? That one we're less sure about. Different commentators have different thoughts. Would water ruin it? Because water can, can put linen out of shape and, and, and wreck it. Or did God want Jeremiah to just sweat through it again and again? Because that would conform a, a, a stiff linen, linen uh, girdle to his, to his body. It was, was, was don't, don't, put, don't wash it to pursue closeness. Or in the other direction, did God want it to get dirty and dirtier and dirtier as an illustration of, of how Judah was becoming in his eyes? This is ask three rabbis get four opinions territory. We really don't know. Could be none of those things. And Jeremiah probably didn't know. He just knows what God had asked him to do. And he does as God instructs. He buys it. He wears it. He doesn't wash it. And then... He buries it under a rock on the bank of the Euphrates River. Now let's pause and think about what that means, because we can just, okay, it's a place name and we can keep going. Where is the Euphrates? It's not in Israel. It's nowhere close to Israel. Yeah, it, start, it actually starts in, in modern ge geographical terms, it starts in Turkey, flows through Syria and Iraq. We associate it with Iraq flows through Iraq, links up with the Tigris, and then flows into the Persian Gulf. It's nowhere close to Israel. In fact, it's 350 miles away from Jerusalem. And more to the point, who controlled that territory in Jeremiah's day? The Babylonians. People who, who labor over the chronology in Jeremiah, side trip and sort of geeking out on a Wednesday night, because that's what we do. People who labor over the chronology, okay, which message was really given in what order at what time, some of them speculate, okay, this must be happening during the reign of Jehoiakim. We had Jeho Josiah, then Jehoahaz, then Jehoiakim, then Jehoiachin, and then the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, 
what makes you think that? Because we don't have a lot of prophecy from Jeremiah that we have any reason to believe was given in the latter days of Jehoiakim's reign. Is it possible that we don't have any messages recorded during the latter days of Jehoiakim's kingship because he was on the road? 350 miles is a non-trivial journey. It took Ezra four months to make that journey. Now, he was traveling with a big group of people, so that probably slowed him down. But that's one way, that, that one thing that would explain his absence. Other people say, oh, and add on to that, when Nebuchadnezzar shows up in Jeremiah 39, Nebuchadnezzar seems very gracious, very kindly disposed to, to Jeremiah, as if out of nowhere. Well, maybe they met during Jeremiah's walkabout to the territory of Babylon. That's all speculation. That's Wednesday night head-scratching. Could be. But what, what we know for sure, Jeremiah undertook a significant journey in obedience to the Lord. And then, verse 6, he does it again. A second 700-mile round trip to, to go back and retrieve the girdle. The, the sash, which having been stored in a damp place, by the, by the time it took Jeremiah to go back the first time, and then we read many days passed while he was in Jerusalem, and then the time it takes him to go back to the Euphrates, this linen garment is wrecked. It's ruined. It's rotted. It's, it's worthless. I remember being a, being a young kid, and, and my grandmother had, had given me a wooden you know, keepsake kind of a box. And because I was a young guy and I was reading pirate stories, I decided, well, what do you do with a, with a, with a treasure box? You bury it. I was shocked to go back a couple of weeks later and find that the wood had rotted. I hadn't figured out that that's what happened when you put something in the ground. Jeremiah put this, this piece of cloth not only in the ground, but into the ground next to a river. It was way rotted out. At which point Jeremiah had to be asking, what was the point of that, Lord? God tells us, verse 8, when the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 9, thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I've caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they might become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. And it's that last phrase that, that lends some credence to the speculation. Maybe that's why he wasn't to wash it, so it would be really, really close, really, really conformed to his body. But... What's the point? The point is just as the linen sash representing Judah was ruined by the waters of Babylon, Judah will be ruined by Babylon when Babylon's army comes in like a flood. How many times have we read things like that in prophecy? An advancing army, an invading army likened to, to floodwaters. Why? Why is that going to happen? We don't have to guess. Verse 9, God tells us, pride. God's intention was to be the strength 
of Judah to gird them up. We see that places like Psalm 18.39, where David said, you've girded me with strength for the battle. That's the relationship God wanted to have with his people. He wanted to be their, their strength and their song. Judah had decided they didn't need the Lord's strength. They didn't require his words. They had become confident in themselves. Confident in themselves and in their idols. So they'd abandon their calling. They, they, they basically renounced their ministry. They'd walked away from the Lord. So that's the first illustration, the first symbolic reiteration of things that the Lord has already said more directly. Verse 12, God comes at it again through another uh, symbolic uh, iteration. Verse 12, maybe this is given around the same time, maybe it isn't, we don't know. Therefore, you shall speak to them this word. Second illustration, God says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. Their commentators speculate maybe that this was a message that Jeremiah stood up and shared at a party, at a feast, at some ceremonial occasion. Maybe he was being like, like Jesus so often was, looking at the, the surrounding environment to grab an object lesson, to grab an illustration. Perhaps this was given at a place where people were drinking. And Jeremiah, most commentators believe, was quoting a popular saying. Our, our, our cups will never be empty. And, and they believe that because the response, still verse 12, they will say to you, the crowd that you're speaking to will say back to you, Jeremiah, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Probably a popular saying, a, a, a catchphrase. You know, the early bird gets the worm. Uh, it's never over till it's over. Whatever, you know, something that people were used to hearing. Our cups will always be full. Either because God will always provide, or, or but, but the answer from the people is, duh. We know this. Why are you, why are you, why you're standing up and make a big deal out of a cliche? We thought you were a prophet. We thought you were supposed to say profound things. Verse 13, Jeremiah says, yeah, I just did. Verse 13, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I'll dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Because when Jeremiah said wine, the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah, what he was really talking about was wrath, God's wrath. Principle of expositional constancy. Idioms in scripture usually, not always, but usually mean the same thing. And we see a cup used this way frequently in scripture, don't we? Psalm 60, Isaiah 51. Ezekiel 23, Revelation 14, perhaps the best known example. The cup of God's wrath. But here we encounter the irony, the, 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 the tragic irony behind that expression. Every bottle, every container, every wineskin shall be filled with wine. You can translate that word different ways. 
Every bottle shall be filled with wine. Whether it means God will always provide us with wine or we will be provided wine through, through one way or another. Israel is saying, Judah is saying, we're good. We're chosen. We never lack. We're fine. Verse 13 and 14, God says, no, you really aren't. You arrogantly presume I'll keep filling your cup with wine. But what your arrogance is asking for, what your pride is demanding is, is a different kind of filling. My cup will be filled to overflowing with wrath. Judgment for your arrogance, for your pride. And the outworking of that wrath is going to be brutal. Verse 14, dash them against one another. That could be an oblique reference to cannibalism. The cannibalism that we know that Judah resorts to during the, the onslaught, during the siege of the Babylonians. Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 5 are a couple of the references there. Drunkenness, verse 13, that, that's easier to interpret. That almost certainly refers to just a complete inability of the, of the people of Judah to defend themselves from kings on down. You'll, you'll be tossed about, you'll, you'll, you'll be fighting one another more than you'll be fighting the enemy. And why? Why, verse 14, why will God not pity? Why will God not spare? Why will God not have mercy? Why will God only destroy, one word, verse 15, pride? Hear and give ear, do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. God always provides a way of escape. And here he's indicating through Jeremiah, that way is still available to you, Judah. What's the way of escape? Humble yourselves. Don't be too proud to repent. Verse 16, how about you do this? Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. Before you're looking for light and he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Verse 16, we see some references to other apocalyptic scripture. Dense darkness, thick darkness. That sounds like chapter 1 of Zephaniah. The shadow of death, well that's right out of Psalm 23, isn't it? God always offers a way of escape before judgment. But as he does so often, God is simultaneously pointing to that off-ramp, pointing to that open door to safety, while simultaneously declaring he knows Judah is not going to avail themselves of it. He knows Judah isn't going to take advantage of it. Verse 17, but if you will not hear it, since you will not hear it, when you refuse to hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Verse 18, Say to the king and the queen mother, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. This is almost certainly a reference to Jehoiachin, next to last king of Judah, and his mother, Nehushta. What do we know about Jehoiachin? We know from 2 Kings 24, he became king at age 18, that's why mom was very important. Reigned for a hundred days. 
before Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, you don't get to be the king. He was installed as king by Pharaoh during, during a, a, a failed attempt to align themselves with the Egyptians. Um, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and says, no, I don't think so. I'm going to install my guy, and he installs Zedekiah. This is all 597 B.C. So verse 18 is referencing the early days, the beginning of judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. There were several waves of judgment, the last of which was in 586. This refers to one of the early ones in 597. Tell the royal family to get ready because the Babylonians are coming. Now, uh, verse 19 the cities of the south shall be shut up and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Does this refer to a later wave of judgment? Maybe, or maybe this is part and parcel of what we just read in verse 18, where not all people were carried off. It wasn't such a, a comprehensive exile as happens in 586. This could be just saying no part of Judea, uh, Judah is going to be spared. All of the cities will be subject to Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Either way, God is warning invasion is coming and it's your fault. Verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north the Babylonians. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Flock could be, hey Judah, all of your people are scattered. Or this could be saying something a little bit more narrow, a little bit more specific. Hey Jerusalem, look at the cities that are being scattered, that are being overcome. The cities that you failed to shepherd. I lean that way because of the, the continued focus on Jerusalem as we keep going. For what will you say when he punishes you? For you've taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? Jerusalem was supposed to be shepherding Judah. Jerusalem was where both the kings and the priests were headquartered. So both politically and spiritually, leadership was supposed to be coming from Jerusalem. But instead, because they abdicated their leadership, because they committed leadership malpractice, they're now going to be shepherded, violently shepherded, viciously shepherded, by those that they mistakenly thought were going to help them. What will you say when he punishes you? For you've taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. This is a reference to Judah repeating Israel's mistakes. Israel in Hosea's day had turned to Egypt and Assyria for help, only to be ravaged by them. Now Judah is repeating that mistake. They're doing the exact same thing. And the same thing is going to lead to the same outcome. If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. That really closely parallels judgment that God spoke through Hosea against Israel. Hosea 2.10, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. You think you can forestall judgment. You think you can squirm out of my wrath by aligning yourself with this nation or that nation. Israel tried it. It didn't work out. You can try it. It's not going to work out. 
while you, you know, and God goes back, you still theoretically have time to repent. That's the way of deliverance. That's the way of escape. But time is running out because Nebuchadnezzar's gearing up. The, 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 the army, the invading force is coming from the north. They're not there yet. The window's still open a crack, but it's closing. And God knows that they're not going to take advantage. Verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you also do good who are accustomed to evil. Pride has driven Judah too far for too long. They're not going to change now. People don't change the color of their skin. Leopards don't change their spots. You're not going to change your heart, God says. Therefore, I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. And again, when it happens, I don't want you to think it's fate. I don't want you to think it's random. I don't think, want you to think it's coincidence. I want you to know that it's judgment. This is your lot, verse 25. The portion of your measures from the cosmic forces of the universe? No, from me, says the Lord. Why? Because you've forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, I'll uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. The same thing that he said would happen to Israel. I've seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! Will you still not be made clean? After all these warnings, I'm pronouncing it again, I'm emphasizing it again. When it happens, you'll be without excuse. When it happens, you will know it was your doing. Just as, let's pivot to application tonight. Just as when God chastens us, we know it's our doing. Some of the pain, some of the loss, some of the sickness, some of the sadness that we experience in this life is just a function of the universe being broken. We've talked about that a lot on Sundays especially. Sin crashed the universe. And, and some of the pain that visits us is purely a result of that. But not all of it. Some of it is personal. Hebrews 12.6, God chastens who? those he loves, chastens, disciplines, punishes, not unto destruction, but for correction. God punishes us. And I'm reminded tonight, God is reminding us tonight, the correction we need, because we all sometimes need it, is rarely a function of, of us going out and doing a bunch of really wicked stuff. Not many believers wake up one day corrupted to the core. Not many of us are likely to say, you know what, today I'm going to be wicked. Yesterday I was following the Lord, but today I want to do evil. We don't start there. The corruption that we experience and the correction that God brings as a result of it usually don't start with us doing evil stuff right out of the blue. It usually begins with us not doing the right things. 
if we do wake up and find ourselves in a, in a, in a heaping mess of wickedness, surrounded by profoundly evil stuff, it's usually because for a while we've been neglecting the right stuff, the Jesus stuff. Look back at verse 11 as, as we wrap up tonight. As the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I've called the, caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord that they may what? Become my people? For renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. If, if that's true for Judah, how much more so is that true for us? Called to be God's special people. To bear his name for renown. To inspire praise. To be a source of glory. How? Through our close, intimate relationship with him. What gets in the way? Anything that gets in the way of that intimacy. Jeremiah's trip with the linen garment tells the story. People were called to be that close with God. Take away that closeness. Take away the proximity, the intimacy of that relationship. Take away the time together. Take away the familiarity that, that comes from time together. Take away the devotion that comes from knowing somebody that well. And everything falls apart, doesn't it? When we put God on a shelf, when we put God in a box, and say, this is your place in my life. This is where you live. This is where you sit. Don't exceed your boundaries, Lord. When we put God, what did Jeremiah do, in a hole, and we say, hey, fit in here, in this, in this place, this out-of-the-way place, this, this place that's distant from my day-to-day -day life, my everyday life, this place that's distant from my other relationships, my other activities. Isn't that where corruption creeps in? What led to Judah's ruin? The neglect of their spiritual life. Their, the, the neglect of their relationship with God. They stopped seeing God for who he was. They stopped hearing what God wanted to say. They stopped making him a part of their daily lives. They stopped worshiping him. They started letting things that weren't God compete with him. Things that weren't God become more important than him, separate, get in the way of their relationship with him. Put distance between God and them. We read prophecy, we read revelation, we ask ourselves, how does the church, how do God's people fall into apostasy? Practical atheism. Behaving, behaving no differently than people who, who openly disavow God. The same way that Judah did. One compromise at a time. 
Think about marriages that you've seen. I've done a lot of marriage counseling in the last 20 plus years. Not once have I counseled a couple who woke up one day and decided to cheat on one another. I've never counseled a spouse that out of nowhere fell into adultery. It always begins once people are, are, are willing to get honest. It always begins with when they stop being intentional about loving their partner. Love is a verb. Love is a choice. Love is a series of choices. It's a lifestyle of choosing. Adultery begins when we become apathetic about love. Spiritual adultery begins when we become apathetic about loving God and partaking of his love for us. When we stop actively pursuing and prioritizing the relationship. Father, forgive us for the times that we do put you in a box, ask you to live in a hole, set you to one side, and then blame you for the rottenness that ensues, the corruption that enters. It is never your fault. You call us to be close, to be special, to make your name famous. Lord, would you open our eyes, open our hearts to the ways where that compromise might just be even beginning. Lord, show us the steps that lead to the steps that lead to the steps that lead to coldness, distance, hard-heartedness. And for those tonight who might be realizing even now that they are far from you, they have compartmentalized you, Lord, would you speak the same words to hearts that you spoke to Jeremiah, that you spoke to Judah? Don't be too proud to repent. Father, would you call your people back? Would you assure them through your spirit that it isn't too late? That you've never stopped longing for intimacy. And that your forgiveness is there for each of us. Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.